So our text today is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. Um, if you, hopefully, do we have any extras? We, looks like we got a couple here. All right, good. So everyone will have the same passage in front of them. If it had been my preference, I would have skipped this section. (laughs) It is probably one of the most controversial and one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. Um, In fact, in my preparation, normally what I do is I have the text laid out in a very thin column and then I make notations along the side in circles and lines and on my notes and I do a lot of cont- uh, extemporaneous teaching. You've seen that. I don't necessarily, um, I glance at my notes but then I speak from what I've learned. This time, I wrote it out. <laughs> I have 14 pages of handwritten notes on this passage because it is so difficult and it's so important to say it the right way. This passage is such that it's fascinating because it can teach us about how to read the Bible. It can teach us how we ought to read the Bible. And it can teach us our limitations when we read the Bible. We don't always know everything. Only God does. One New Testament scholar said, if, I were to, if you were to ask me what is the most difficult passage in the New Testament and the Old Testament to preach, teach, or exegete, there is no doubt I would choose this one. Hooray! <laughs> I have before you nine different books. Each one of them has a chapter on this passage, and none of them agree with each other. (laughs) And this isn't even half of what I have in my library on this particular topic. Um, Normally, it's uh, usually under the the guise of the headship of men and women, or the issue of differences between men and women, but they always have a chapter on this. And it's also a little interesting when you have a book called The Handbook of Difficult Bible Verses and they have three entries on this passage alone. Three. Normally it's just one little paragraph and then they move on to the next one. This time they kept coming back to it. Yeah, little books like Is It Okay to Call God Mother? An entire book on the topic. Women, authority, and the Bible. Uh, what is the differences men and womenhood defined according to the Bible? Women in church leadership. Man is male and female. Uh, how I change my mind about women in leadership. Discovering biblical equality. It's enormous topic. In fact, as Lisa will attest, as I've been reading and contemplating and thinking about this passage for a while now, and I have been tied up in knots as to how I'm going to approach this. How do I do this? How do we solve 
the, the questions or the issues here in one hour. <laughs> and it's me teaching it. Right. It's just not going to happen. We know that. Which is why, well, I, I don't want to get too far off my notes already. Those nine books and the others don't even include the commentaries that I have on 1 Corinthians and does not include the various sermons, the lectures I listen to, and, this, and the, even the two hours I listened to Alistair Begg on this topic. And he was all tied up in knots. The books I have and the literature that I've collected, I went into my library and pulled them, pulled them out and went, it's one of my little um, uh, afflictions. But if I find an article in a magazine or even online, I will, if it's online, I will copy and paste that article into a Word document and then I save it, print it out, and stick it into the book on my library. So I can come back and not have to try to figure out, oh, where was that article that I saw way back when? It's just one of my filing methodology. The pages that I had saved on this issue were this thick. And what's fascinating, they go all the way back to 1982. I found articles from 1992 from 2002, from 2012. This issue has not gone away. If anything, it's gotten even more polarized and more challenging as our culture changes around us. It's so challenging, I throw my hands up in surrender. And warning, as we read this, you will face uncertainty. If you, as a 21st century person, want to feel offended, read this passage. <laughs> in your handout, I broke the passage into six different sections. You can see it right there on, the, on your, your page. But in your Bible, it's one paragraph. And by the way, my breakdown is already, I already realized I missed up one of the sections, but it's regardless, it's one paragraph. So when you come to this in your Bible, it looks very dense. And as you start reading it, as the question raised in your head, you go, I'll just skip this and get to the good stuff about the Lord's Supper, because that's next. And that is so much easier to figure out than this is. But I have a quote on the second page of your handout that I want you all to look at. And if anything, I'd like you to keep it in your Bible and, or frame it in your house. Human thought is not the arbiter of truth, but the infallible word is the end of all strife. It is not ours to say what the truth of God must be, or what we think it should be, or what we would like it to be but reverently to sit down with open ears and willing heart to receive what God has spoken. There's never been a truer statement about the power of Scripture and our responsibility when we come to this. Because what happens is that well-meaning people, strong Christian people, you cannot doubt their faith. 
come to this passage and they want it to say something different than what it says. And so they interpret it that way because they are being influenced by the culture around them. I have watched so many people in this last few years, people that I respect who have begun to shade their thinking in various issues of society based on what society is telling them to think. And they fail to come back to scripture and say, but what does the scripture say? By the way, this passage from Spurgeon is, was in a sermon of his that he preached on May 11th, 1879 on the passage of 2 Corinthians 10.5. In case you're interested, it's sermon number 1473. In case you want to ever look it up, it's not a made-up quote. It's actually from his own transcript of what he wrote and spoke. So let this statement be our guiding principle as we approach this really difficult passage. Not what we want it to say, but what it actually says. And those of you who are fans of Alistair Begg, his principle of biblical interpretation? The main thing is the plain thing. The main thing is the plain thing, and the plain thing is the main thing. It's very simple. What does it say? Well, the main thing is usually pretty plain in Scripture, except in this passage. Uh, <laughs> but the plain thing is the main thing. So we look for the principles that we can extract from it. All right? So that is our introduction. Now we get to read the passage and be offended. All right, let's, I will just read the passage, all of it. Then we're going to come back to and go verse by verse as quickly as I can, because we only have an hour, and try to unravel this piece. And by the way, if you're wondering why it starts with verse 2, verse 1 actually belongs with the previous chapter. There's a weird break in whoever arbitrarily made these choices. So we start with verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. 
If any was inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Clear as day. Right? And you can, you can actually very easily dismiss this whole section as saying it's just cultural stuff. has no application to us at all. So we will skip it. And I found many sermon series where this passage was skipped. Now my problem with that is that if you can choose to skip this passage and say it's only for that culture, then what else are you going to skip in Scripture? Because you say it doesn't apply to culture. Oh, let's skip Romans chapter 1. About homosexuality. Let's skip that because it's dealing with a cultural issue. Well, why not Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments? You know, why not the Sermon on the Mount? I mean, it's just all cultural, right? Wrong. We can't do that. Because if you pick and choose what you want to read out of Scripture, you are creating your own religion. There's no half way of looking at it. So we have to approach this and go, okay, what's being said here? Now, obviously, we start with verse 2. Likely, verse 2 is an introduction to all of chapters 11 through 14. Because in 11 through 14, he addresses things where the church has been off the rails. Issues like the actions of women in worship. The inappropriate expression of the Lord's Supper. The misuse of spiritual gifts. That's what we're facing (laughs) in these next many weeks. Which, by the way, if you saw the uh, insert in the bulletin about, you know, the uh, teleos and what we're going to be teaching, they asked me what I was going to be teaching months ago for the announcement in the bulletin. And so it says that we're going to be in 2 Corinthians and Romans. And I'm looking at going, no, we're not. (laughs) We're not even through Corinthians yet. Uh, But at the time, I thought, oh, sure, Steve, you'll just rattle right through 1 Corinthians. You'll be done by January. No, we won't. Anyway, that's a little side note. So he says in verse 2, thank you for remembering me and everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Well, what traditions? He doesn't say them. He's obviously, as a preamble, is talking about how worship is to be conducted, how the Lord's Supper is to be conducted, and how the spiritual gifts are to be utilized. He most likely taught them these things when he was there establishing the church. He was there for 18 months. Which if you only give him once a week to teach something... He would have taught 70 lessons, maybe 80. But more than likely, he was teaching multiple times and going into people's homes and discipling and counseling and encouraging and letting these people know what's going on. And he commends them for at least having worship services, at least having the traditions. But then, obviously, there are problems in the congregation. So what's the first word 
of the next verse. But, oops, yeah, he goes, you know, you're doing, thank you for, you know, working at it, but, but I want you to understand that the head of a man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. This is where the issues and the controversies begin, right here. This verse is so important as it is foundational of the rest of our passage. Everything from verse 4 to 16 is based on what we find here in verse 3. And you're going to have to try to stick with me here. I've had the opportunity to meditate on this and think about this for weeks and hours and hours and hours. You're getting it fresh right this moment. So... Just try to stick with me as best you can. The controversy begins with the word head. It says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is a husband, and the head of Christ is God. So what does the word head mean? It is the Greek word kephale. And literally, kephale means your head. That thing that's stuck on the top of your neck. The physical object. It's used nine times in verses 3 through 10. Nine times. It's the key word. He keeps using it. But it's complicated because he uses it both literally and figuratively in the same sentence. You can see that for yourself as you read this passage. Sometimes he's talking about the literal head, and other times he's talking about the metaphorical head. But our English language, and even the Greek language, does not distinguish between the two. So it's up to us to try to figure out, well, what's happening. It's obvious that verse 3, it's all figurative. He doesn't say, literally, the head of the man is Christ. In other words, as I'm standing here, on top of my neck is little Jesus. That isn't what he's saying. That would be weird. But he's saying metaphorically. So then becomes the question, well, what does the metaphor mean? And there are two interpretations. The traditional interpretation has meant that the word head means authority. But a more modern interpretation is that the word head means source. Very different meanings of this word. And again, I'm going to just have to read from my notes here. So, and by the way, I need to give credit to Mark Strauss and Tom Schreiner because I use their material as my outline because I'm not smart enough. Okay, so I quote, I mixed those two and I also pulled in stuff from five or six other major sources into my notes. So what I'm saying is not necessarily original, but at least it helps us guide us. Otherwise, I'd be sitting where you are floundering going, I don't know, you know, what do you think? And that's not helpful either. So if the word means source, if head means source, like the head of a river is the source of a river. That's what we mean when we say the head of the river. 
What they're saying is that man is the source of women, as found in Genesis chapter 2. That woman came from man. Man was the source. And God is the source of man, because he created man. Even in Ephesians 4, verses 15 to 16, it reads, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way in him who is the head, Kephale, into Christ, from whom the whole body is joined and held together, etc., etc. In other words, they cite that saying that means source, because that's what that verse kind of means in that regard. And if you look in verse 8 of chapter 11, it says, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. We have again the idea of source. But, if you were to argue for source as the meaning, you are trying to avoid the idea that man has leadership or authority over women. So, anytime you read any literature that interprets this word as source, you immediately know the predisposition of the writer or the speaker. That they're trying to minimize the idea of authority of men over women. Right away. It's one of the great uh, trigger points. You can look at it and go, oh, well, we kind of know where you're going with the rest of your interpretation. The vast majority of scholars suggest that this word means authority. The vast majority of them, and not just the old ones, and not just the conservative ones, but the vast majority look at the word kephale in its figurative sense throughout Scripture. And they say, mm, you know, almost all the time it means authority. I mean, even verse 10. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority over her head. Colossians 2.10 You have been filled in him who is the head, the kephale, of all rule and authority. Ephesians 1.22 He put all things under his feet and gave him as kephale, as head over all things to the church. Meaning Christ. Or Ephesians 5.23, For the husband is the head, the kephale of the wife, even as Christ is the kephale, the head of the church. If you try to change those meanings to source, it makes no sense at all. The word means authority whether we want it to or not. That's my position. And I think it's probably going to be the position of anyone who really understands Greek and understands the thrust of the text at all. But there's another reason why source is a problem. Look at the passage again. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband and then third and the head of Christ is God. If you change the word source, then that last phrase would, would read, and the source of Christ is God. Meaning that God created Jesus. 
and he's not equal to him. You have right there a huge problem in the definition, the understanding of the Trinity. And now I'm going to read again. Are they saying that Jesus is then a subordinate to God? This is a heresy. And it really flashpoint grew into the 4th century. And that's why they had the Nicene Council, the Council of Chalcedon, and all these others were to solve these issues because statements were being made and teachings were being uh, uh, spread that Christ was subordinate to God and there was no, that there was a hierarchy in the Trinity. They're saying there's a difference in nature or being between the Father and the Son and Spirit and that they are not one. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are equal. There is a functional subordination, but not an essence of subordination. But we can study the Trinity another day and you know get ourselves all twisted and knots on that issue. And if you want to read a really good book on the Trinity, read James White's book called The Forgotten Trinity. He wrote the book um, basically at my uh, encouragement, it was 25, 30 years ago, uh, when I was an editor at Bethany House and James was just starting out as a writer. And I said, you know, this issue of the Trinity, as Christians, we never think about it until a Jehovah Witness comes to the door. <laughs> and then we can't remember why it's important. And they just run right over us with their doctrine and their understanding. And we're going, uh, 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 well, that's what I believe. And then you can't define it. And so he wrote, wrote a book called The Forgotten Trinity. And in layman's terms, what does this mean? And why is it important? Why is it such a critical doctrine in the church? It's a really, really good book. The Nicene Fathers, and I'm quoting, ascribe to the Son and the Spirit an equality of being or essence, but a subordination of order. So you cannot say that this word means source because it then creates a problem in the Godhead because of the last half of this verse, last third of the verse. Hmm? The Godhead. The Godhead. I did it again, didn't I? Yes. <laughs> All right. The next question in verse 3. Is the passage about men and women generally or about husbands and wives? And you might go, well, my passage right there, you have it right in front of you. It says wives. Well, yeah. But the Greek doesn't necessarily mean that. The ESV reads husbands and wives, but that was a translation decision made by the translators to put it into English. The word for man there is aner, A-N-E-R. It's a variation of, or an, a limitation of the word anthropos, which means mankind in general, usually when translated. But aner usually means man, but it is also translated as husband in the New Testament. In fact, it's uh, used 51 times. In the New American Standard, 12 times it is translated as husband, and the other 33 times is translated as man. In the NASB, 
it's not translated as husband in this passage. It's only translated as man. If you compare the NASB with the ESV, they are different. It's the same Greek word underneath it. And you might go, well, I'm confused. Well, welcome to the club. The word for woman or wife is the Greek word gynaikos. So we get the word gynecologist. It also can be translated as woman or wife. It's used 23 times. And again, in the New American Standard, it's translated as wife nine times, but not here. So you have the ESV, a conservative translation, and the NASB, a conservative translation, disagreeing right here in this passage. Is this about men and women in general or about husbands and wives? We don't know. We just don't know. It's not clear. There's no way to nail it down. So, this is one of those times where I say, you pick. And guess what? You're right. Whichever one you choose. Because really, does it matter if he's talking about men and women in general or husbands and wives in particular? Not really. Because the fundamental principle to everything follows from here. Since Christ is the authority over men, and since men are the authority over women, it follows that no man should wear a head covering when he prays or prophesies, while a woman should. That's the preamble to the rest of the passage. So, let's go to verse 4 and continue. This is the opening of our discussion of hair, a sea. <laughs> Heresy, yes. I'm, it's a really bad joke. I have it underlined three times with a little smiley face. Heresy. Are we talking about heresy, really? I found a wonderful, really, really brilliantly done article just in the last two weeks. I was posted on the Gospel Coalition, and they talked about theological triage. And it's just so brilliantly written. He said, there are three levels of theological discussions. You have level A, which are the core beliefs. The ones that we have established and maintained, like in the Apostles' Creed. Jesus is God incarnate. Jesus died on the cross. He rose from the grave to save us from our sins. I mean, these are basics. Then you have level two. And level two are things that... Uh, inform the church in how the church works and operates. Things like the Lord's Supper. No, it's not necessarily an A, it's a B. And we can have differences between them. You can have one church that says we have to have consubstantiation. Another says that, you know, the Lord's Supper is a memorial. And you can have uh, even the mode of baptism. Is it sprinkling? Is it pouring? Is it immersion? Is, in some cases, immersion three times for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Does it matter how much water it is? That's a B. It's not an A. Yeah, we tend to say, well, I'm going to this church because they dunk them. And this church, now nah, they sprinkle them. They're not fully saved. Well, fine. I mean, seriously, when I was growing up, I still remember, in the back seat of the car, my brothers were already graduated from high school and left home 
And of course, back then, you didn't have to wear your seatbelt when you're in the back seat. So I'm sitting on the edge of my seat with my arms over the front, and Ma, Dad's here, Mom's here, and we're driving to church. <laughs> Dad, why don't we go to that church? We can walk there. It's a Presbyterian church, because we're on our way to our Baptist church, which is another 20 minutes. <sighs> why don't we just go there? We can walk there. And he says, they sprinkle. <laughs> That's all he said. And I grew up, it wasn't until I was adult that I went, oh, does it really matter? Does it? So that's a B. Then there's C. There's C-level issues, which all sorts of variations go along, and it really doesn't matter at all. We just have these wonderful discussions, like complementarianism versus egalitarianism, and the headship of Christ, or the, head, the, head and, the men and women relationships. Is that a B, that we separate ourselves? Is it an A? Absolutely not. Some people like to make it an A. The problem is, in issues of C, like this one, they tend to creep their way into B. So that the role of women in church, the roles that they play start maintaining the belief system of that particular group related to how the church order is. But it's not an A. Don't mistake it for an A-level theological issue. Right? That was extemporaneous. It wasn't in my notes. So we come to this one. While there were two questions in verse 3, is it source or authority, there are three big questions in verses 4, 5, and 6. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. And you can already see in my notes I broke it up incorrectly when I was preparing it ahead of time. So, number one. Your translators had to choose. Is the passage about head covering or about long and short hair? It's not really that clear. It could be. The literal Greek in verse 4 reads this way. Every man who prays or prophesies is having down his head. Literally, every man who prays or prophesies is having down his head. We read it as every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. It doesn't say that. You have to interpret it. Otherwise, the sentence makes no sense at all in English. You see why this is so difficult? Every man who prays or prophesies is having down his head. That means it's an idiom. It's an idiom that Paul understood it's an idiom that his readers understood. We go, what does that mean? We don't know. We've lost that meaning. Now, most people feel it's a head covering of some sort. I mean, I told Lisa, and she goes, you won't, don't you dare. I said, I actually thought of bringing party hats and making us all put them on our heads, and then the men would have to take them off so we don't dishonor God. But that would have been a little bit over the top. Then I thought of bringing doilies. 
And I thought, you know, I'm just being sarcastic, but that's not helpful. But you see how easy it is to dismiss this passage if we play that game? Some people bring this up and go, well, what about the Jews who wear the yarmulke? Are they, aren't they covering their head? Well, for one thing, they're not Christians. Okay. And the second thing is that that practice was not done in the first century. It started in the late second century. And the Jews have the yarmulke as a symbol that God is over their head. That God is above. And that symbol that they have on their head is simply to show how they are honoring their place in relation to God. That's it. Has nothing to do with this passage. And there are people who go, well, see, the Jews, they don't do it. I'm like, yeah, Paul, they weren't alive when they were doing that, when Paul was writing this. So let's just put that aside. So they feel that the head covering of some sort, or is the hair the covering? Like for a woman, is it uh, bound up in a bun or put on, you know, piled up? as a covering. Second issue, and I'm not going to answer these questions, I just want to pose the questions. Whose head is being dishonored? Read it carefully. The man who prays with his literal head covered dishonors his head. Well, whose head? For the man you're dishonoring who? Christ. Christ. The metaphorical head. So the literal head covered dishonors his metaphorical head, Christ. Remember our hierarchy in verse 3. You see why verse 3 was so important. Because then it reads, women who pray with their literal head uncovered dishonors her head. And who is the head in this passage, the man. You see why this becomes kind of, you have to look at it and go, okay, he's not just talking flippantly, he's making statements. So, he's making the point that shameful behavior in worship dishonors Christ. And all who are present, we can at least get that from this. All of us here can at least understand that something is wrong in this congregation. And Christ is being dishonored in some way. Thirdly, why is it dishonorable? I mean, for goodness sake. You know, I do not see a single head covering in this room. And I won't make the assumption, but I also don't see a toupee. <laughs> a couple of you could use one. <laughs> I could use one. I'm losing it very quickly. But see, you know, there are people who say, well, the, what, does a toupee count? I mean, seriously, let's go on some deviations on this theme. That's just craziness. But what's dishonorable? What's wrong with a man praying with his head covered? It's an easy answer. We don't know. <laughs> Literally, we don't know. There is no agreement on this passage at all. We just have to look at it and go, uh, we're not quite sure. We can guess. 
And I'm going to try to do that here. But it's not a very clear understanding. I'm not trying to avoid instructions here, but we really don't know. I have point A, B, and C here. Point A. In pagan worship, some men would put a shawl over their head. We find statues of Caesar Augustus, who has taken either his robe or his shawl and put it over his head. And it was a symbol of their worship. And they would do it in their pagan worship ceremonies. And so if men were then mimicking Caesar Augustus, were they then also mimicking their pagan practices? That's a possibility. We don't know that's for sure, but that's a possibility. <clears throat> Number two, and this is an interesting interpretation, very fascinating actually, is that the head covering, the man covering his head erases gender distinction. So if everyone in the room has their head covered, how do you know which ones are the men and which ones are the women? I mean, they might have a full beard, maybe, maybe not. There's very few statues of Greek or Roman leaders with beards. They were always shaven, most of the time. Not all the time, but frequently. So it's interesting that that gender distinction becomes visual. You can see it very quickly. Now remember the pagan culture of, the, of Corinth. Those who had come out of the pagan culture were walking into this church <clears throat> and then trying to bring their pagan practices with them. Even to the point of them saying, well, now that I am free in Christ, I can do whatever I want and I can merge what I was doing before and it has no effect. This has been, we've seen this in the first 10 chapters of 1 Corinthians of all these various issues, everything from, hey, I don't even have to be married anymore because in Christ I'm not bound by any of this. Remember that? That was in chapter 7. C. So I have A, B, now C. Could it be that a woman showing her hair, and by the way, it's the word covering is not the word veil, despite what some translations say. It also doesn't say burqa. This isn't a head covering as in covering their entire visage. It isn't a veil of the face. It's a head covering, not a face covering. It would be a different word if it had the word face here. Let's be clear, even though some translations do use the word veil. But could it mean <clears throat> that a woman showing her hair indicated that she was an available woman? And that her hair was an attraction to other men? That actually has some power here in our interpretation, if you think about it, there were a lot of prostitutes in Corinth. A lot of them, at least a thousand that we know of. How many of them had converted and come into the church? How are they going to differentiate themselves from their former sisters? 
I was actually talking to one of my clients, who's Josh Moody, who's the pastor of um, College Church in Wheaton, a big church right outside Wheaton College. And uh, I, we were talking about a variety of business issues, and I said, okay, Josh, I have to ask you, because you're an incredible scholar, I'm teaching 1 Corinthians 11, pray for me! And he just kind of chuckled. And I said, so what about this whole head covering thing? He said, well, one principle that you maybe can express to your class that I use. He says, what if you're a church planter in Amsterdam today, which is known as one of the most free sexual cities in the world? Prostitution is not illegal there. And what if one weekend, 25, you were able to save 25 women out of prostitution. What do they wear when they come to church tomorrow on Sunday? Maybe their wardrobe, they have nothing else. So they come dressed to church as they went dressed to work. How does the church then respond to that? What are they seeing? Is that some sort of statement? Do we then say, well, cover it all up? Probably. But you might say, you know, we're not saying you have to wear a big robe, or in Hawaii, wear a muumuu. But, you know, try not to wear the halter top next week if you can avoid it. Because you're distracting half the men in this congregation. Could it be? that this exposed hair was creating the wrong signal in the congregation. And then it mentions, you might as well just shave off the hair. Well, Numbers chapter 5, verses 11 to 31, a woman caught in adultery had her hair shorn. So in other words, they were dishonored. So he's saying, if you're leaving your head uncovered, it's as if you're just dishonoring as if you got your hair all cut off like you're a, a, a divorced, divorced woman or a woman caught in adultery. Sorry, not divorced. The bottom line here, this issue was causing disruption in the church. Now, does that mean every one of you need to start wearing hats next week who are women? Of course not. That's not the principle that's being discussed here. The principle is decorum. The principle is what is causing a disruption, let's eliminate the disruption in the congregation. And note one massive thing here, Paul is not forbidding women to participate in worship. Not at all. Remember how radical this was? Even today, year 2019, December, if you go to visit the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, women go to one half and men go to the other half. You are not allowed to go together as husband and wife. When Vice President Pence visited the Wailing Wall, the female reporters and photographers had to stand on chairs on their side to take pictures of Mike Pence at the Wailing Wall because they couldn't actually be there. This was the way it was when I visited there and 
gosh, how long ago was this now? 1976. Did you go to the Wailing Wall when you were there? I, uh, I did not. I needed okay. to take a day off on uh, the day that uh, it was uh, rainy, windy, and cold. Oh, that would have been really nasty, being I out in the side and all that. Yeah. Safety that I might fall. But it's a big, it's a big yes. barrier. It's tall, it's wide, and they tried to um, change the ruling just even a couple years ago, and it was voted down by every possible way it could be voted down. So even then, even today, in the Jewish ceremony, in the Jewish, at a very holy place for them, men and women are separated. Paul does not separate them. He doesn't say, ladies, on this side of the classroom, men on this side. That's the way it should be. No, he's not saying that at all. So let's make sure we don't misinterpret it. But Paul does insist that women's participation show evidence of a demeanor that is humble and reflective of male leadership. So let's keep going. Verse 6 through 10. Actually, verses 7 through 10, sorry. Verses 7 through 10. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But women, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. So, if verse 4 says to uncover or cover brings dishonor, then is verse 7 dealing with honor? So, if you want to go the dishonor and honor, in fact, Tom Schreiner even suggests that the word glory be translated as the word honor. Problem is, you can't do that. Because the word doxa, D-O-X-A, which we get doxology from, means glory in absolutely every instance in translation. You can't just arbitrarily get, say, now it may have the meaning, and I understand his reasoning, but he changes the meaning of the passage if he uh, tries to do an honor-dishonor uh, comparison. But another scholar put it this way, and I'm sorry, I'm just going to have to read this, because this, is, this gets really difficult. In Genesis 1, chapter 27 and 28, God created Adam, mankind, Adam. Man created Adam, man, mankind, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, comma, male and female, he created them. Thus, mankind, Adam, reflects the image of God. And male and female are part of Adam, mankind, humanity, however you want to translate the word. So, what does woman do with man's glory? They are supposed to cover it up. Because they are not to glorify man. If their head reflects the glory of the next one in the hierarchy, their head reflects the glory of man. M-E-N, men. So cover it. But men, but God's glory 
is reflected in men, verse 3, so we leave it uncovered because the glory then is to God. Do you see the difference? All right, let me put it this way. Another verse 7, note, note verse 7. It says, man is the image and glory of God, but women is the glory of man, not the image and glory of man. Notice the missing word there. Paul does nothing by accident in his writing. There's a very intentional shift in when he's talking about this hierarchy thing. Because she is already in the image of God, but her role in the created hierarchy is the glory of man, therefore cover it up so she is not glorifying man. He's not saying that women are lesser than men. He's using a rhetorical argument. In Genesis, the scripture does not say that woman is a slave to man. It does not say that woman is a pet. It does not say that women are a doormat or a trophy or arm candy. And I tell you, a lot of the, and I haven't used the word yet, the feminist side of the argument, even the evangelical feminist, it, they basically are trying to say that anything in scripture that puts an authority of men over women means that women are a doormat and arm candy. And nowhere in scripture does it say that. It's not even hinted at. So this idea of, well, if, you know, if women, so women's glory is men, then we cover it, and then men's glory is God, so we leave it uncovered. That's a weird argument. It just is. And as the guy wrote, he says, is this strange? You bet. But it's what we got. Then he goes on, verse 8. Genesis 2, verse 3. Woman is made from man, which affirms her being the glory of man, and thus cover it. Verse 9, is gen he's referring to Genesis 2.18, that it's not good for man to be alone, so he makes a helper suitable for him. Helper is not an inferior term. It doesn't mean lesser, as in, stay barefoot and pregnant and shine my shoes. Any man who uses that phraseology in that manner should be whipped. It's just wrong to treat a woman with disrespect. They are equal. All women are equal in the sight of God and in the sight of men. If we read scripture carefully and we interpret it carefully, you look in those passages in Ephesians 5 of the husband and the woman, the husband and the wife, God, it, it's really clear the men have a lot of responsibility here. A lot. And to misuse it for personal gain, we've all seen it, we've all read it, we've probably even observed it. And it's just flat out wrong. In fact, more often, than women being a helper to man in the Old Testament, God is described as the helper. Yes. Yes. Everywhere. God is our help in times of distress. He is our helper. He is there with us, beside us. 
It's none of this hierarchy of, you know, oh golly, I need to be subservient. It never says that, never means that. But we get caught up in words like submission because we have added baggage to that word in our culture. It also means the woman compliments man and make sure we spell that right. It's not compliment. Oh, you look gorgeous today, Charlie. Thank you so much for loving me. No, I compliment him. Woman completes man in creation. Man should not be alone. And he says, here is woman. And they then together create one when they are married. It's very simple. But she is, not, she is to be man's helper, not God's helper. That's how it's written. Verse 10, the word symbol in your text is not in the Greek. We read it as the wife, why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. That word symbol is not there. It's added by every translation. The actual Greek says the woman ought to have authority on her head. Well, what does that mean? So they add in the word symbol. It makes sense contextually because it's been talking about head covering. But every translation adds the word symbol to try to help us understand this text. So it's not, I mean, the NASB has symbol, the RSV has veil, and the NIV has sign, and the ESV has symbol. Hooray. And the reason? Because of the angels. <laughs> that solves it. We can go home now. We figured this one out. Well, the passage doesn't get any easier, does it? And guess what? There's differing views on this passage, on this phrase. Isn't that a surprise? Number one theory is that the text is talking about fallen angels. The ones from Genesis 6 who came in and visited women and had children, which were called the Nephilim. So evil angels are lusting after women in the church because their heads are uncovered. Most likely that's not what he's saying. Because if he was, he would have used the phrase because of the fallen angels. It's kind of simple, but that's one theory. Another theory is the word angelos can also mean messenger. An angel is a messenger. It's used 20 times in the New Testament and in 18 times it's translated as angels. But the other two times it's translated as messenger, once in Luke 9.52 and the other in James 2.25. You can look them up. It's very interesting. It's never translated as messenger in Paul's writings. Ever. So if it's messenger, just to say, let's just keep that idea in there, they're meaning human messengers. That when they visit the church in Corinth and they see the uncovered heads of women, they are scandalized and they are offended by the disrespect and the irreverence. It's a possibility but this interpretation makes a huge assumption on the meaning of the word angel. A massive assumption. One even said that, a uh, conservative commentary said that the word messenger means pastor. Oh, 
Okay, well, pastors are messengers of the Word of God, but I, you try to put that word here, it makes no sense at all. You know, women should have authority on their head because of pastors. No. The third one, which is where most people land, and it doesn't make a lot of sense, but we'll stick with it, that angels are present with us in worship. Yeah, that's biblical. The angels are around us in the spirit world. They desire to see the order of creation maintained in worship, and they are horrified by the intentional irreverence, the flaunting distorter, and the lack of respect. You can actually go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9, and maybe see something here where it reads, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because if we become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men, which means angels are watching. That could be. And if you remember in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 2, angels cover their face when they are in the presence of God as a show of humility and reverence. So, we carry on, verses 11 and 12. I know I'm running out of time, but I'm going to try to do this as fast as I can. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man or man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. People who are offended with verses 3 through 10 skip verses 11 and 12. It's very clear, Paul here is establishing that it, this whole section is not about male supremacy. It is about the complementary aspect of the male and female relationship. Even verse 12 adds a birth order swap. Women came from men, but now men come from women. This, he's just, he's turning things, you know, in that culture, he's turning things upside down, saying, get it right, theologically. Women are created in the image of God, and men have no, are, have no greater worth because of their God-given responsibility to lead. It's obvious with a plain reading of this text that Paul thought role, distinguish, role distinctions and equality are not contradictory. Let me read that again. A plain reading of this text, Paul thought that role distinctions and equality are not contradictory, no matter how the world wants to read it. In verses 3 through 10, Paul makes it clear that there are role distinctions based on creation's order. From God to men, from men to women. It's very clear. That's what he's trying to say. So verse 11 and 12, he doesn't say that women are inferior or less important. In fact, he puts them back up on an equal state statement. But people don't read these verses after reading the other seven because they're offended with a phrase like, um, the, that man is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of men. They just get offended and walk away. In verse 3, judge for yourself. Great. Isn't that helpful? But he just asks kind of a plain question. 
is it proper for a wife, woman, to pray with, to God with her head uncovered? He's just asking. What does it look like? Is it appropriate? <clears throat> Verses 14. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace? Well, that blew the hippies out of the water. Um, you know, but a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace. Hey, my freshman year in college, I let my hair grow out. My hair grows very fast. And I came home first semester and my hair was on my shoulders. It would never been that long, ever. I mean, the longest was right over my ear. My dad took one look at me and went, hmm. That would look nice with a ribbon in it. <laughs> That's all he said. I got a cut the next day. <laughs> because it was disrespecting him. Not because it was some social construct, but I was disrespecting my father. And I knew it. I knew it. I knew what his reaction was going to be. And I tested him. And he didn't go, get a cut. He just looked at me and went, hmm. That would look nice with a ribbon in it. That's all he had to say. I felt his displeasure. And I felt his disappointment. God was looking at this congregation and saying, ladies, what are you... You know, we know what this looks like. What are you doing? Stop it. He appeals to nature. Well... Romans 1.26, For the women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and men, ex men, men likewise gave, a, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, even committing shameless acts with men. And you might say, but what about the Nazarites? The Nazarite vow for men was to let their hair grow long, and we have in Acts chapter 18, verse 18, that Paul had just, after leaving Corinth, got his hair cut because of a vow. So possibly he had long hair when he was in Corinth. But they knew why. It was part of a Nazarite vow. But maybe he tied it up. Maybe he did something so it wasn't offensive. We don't know, we're all making some assumptions here, but isn't that interesting? That he would make that statement here at this time. And then in verse 16, he says, if anyone's so inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. In other words, this is nothing new, and it's everywhere throughout, scripture, throughout the church. We're not making this up just for you. Conclusions. Number one, cultural standards come and go, especially in fashion. Anybody remember leisure suits? <laughs> How about the wide tie versus the skinny tie? How many of us men in this room had to change out our entire tie collection over the years? Uh, what about women? when shoulder pads were in, or miniskirts. I mean, 
seriously, things come and go. They change and they adapt. And so you might say, well, in those situations, if a woman came to church with a very short miniskirt, barely covering her underwear, you can imagine those in the church were going, not, whoa, it's more like, whoa, um, no. You're disrespecting and you're distracting from the service. Can you wear something with a little more decorum? And it sounds like legalism, doesn't it? Because it changes. And we have to be careful about the, using that as, this, as the principle because the principle is about decorum in worship. Not exactly what you should wear. But then, in Chuck Swindoll's commentary, there's this great statement. He asks the question, are we willing to make a conscious decision to let go of our image for his image? Each one of us, can we let go of, hey, I am all that. I look great, so I'm going to church. No. You're going to church with head bowed before the Almighty God. That's what worship is. We're not there to get something. We're there to give something ourselves. What we display outwardly can reflect what's on the inside. And in this context, Paul is trying to communicate the gospel in an unreceptive society. And if you remember some of the other passages, he's saying, if, if what I am doing is going to offend someone, I will stop. I won't eat that. And so he would say, then don't wear that or do wear this because we're trying to get people away from looking at us and instead looking at him. And that's the principle of this passage. Well, as chaotic as it is and as difficult as this passage is, there's really a bottom line principle that's very simple. We worship God. We do not worship ourselves. And anything that distracts from him, from God, we need to stop and change our behavior to reflect his glory and not our own. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together. This enormously difficult passage. Very confusing, hard to understand in simplistic terms. And yet, as always, there's an understanding here. There's a principle here that guides us in a way that we didn't expect when we first come to it. We take our cultural understanding, our rights as men or rights as women, and we inflict them on Scripture instead of letting Scripture change us. And that's, I believe, what you're trying to teach us here in this passage. And this is to all your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.